Well, friends, it is such a joy to be with y'all here today. When I was talking to Brad recently, he said, you know, Greg, it's been a couple of months since you've been in the 1030 traditional service. We need to get you over there, lest folks forget what you look like. And so I, if you have not met me, I would love to introduce myself. I am Greg Morgan, the newest associate pastor here, the new kid on the block. And so I'm so excited to be here with you today. And I'm also really excited because I recently found out something very interesting, and I'm super pumped to share it with you. There is something in the natural world that's a common occurrence, a common phenomenon known as the path of least resistance. And all sorts of things in the natural world follow this pattern. So for example, electricity, when moving through a circuit, will typically take the easiest route. Cars are aerodynamically designed to minimize wind resistance. Donuts are appropriately and perfectly designed for the least amount of resistance between the box and my stomach. No resistance for ruining my diet there. And then, of course, rivers are amazing. They will actually travel around a mountain because it's easier than going through it. And people are actually much the same way when you think about it. It's a lot easier to sit and watch TV than it is to address our neighbor's needs and help them. It's easier to be mad at our spouse and let that anger dissipate or smolder over time rather than sitting down and talking through and working through the problems. It's easier to flip through a Reader's Digest magazine or read a Wikipedia article than it is to sit down and engage in deep personal Bible study. But there's one big difference between us and rivers and electricity and cars and donuts. Those things will never have to give an account of what they've done, but we will. So perhaps we, instead of taking the path of least resistance, we should incline ourselves and we should strive to take the path of greatest persistence. Now, our passage today comes from the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is a relatively difficult book because we really don't know all that much about it. In fact, of all the books in the New Testament, it's the one we know the least about. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know where it was written. We don't really know when it was written, although there's kind of like a 40-year time span where we think it's possible. We're not entirely sure who it's addressed to, although we like to think it's addressed to Christians, maybe ones who converted from Judaism and possibly maybe in Rome. So there's a lot we don't know, but one thing we do know, which is why the book was written. Now, talking about it being written to Christians, we know that the people that it was written to were very faithful and very zealous for good works. There were people who had evidenced and seen the wonders and signs of God's mighty power. There were people who shared and received the gifts of the Spirit, people who endured hardship, people who took care of and cared for the needy among them and the poor. These were incredible sounding people, but there was one problem. They were becoming dull and sluggish in their faith. Many people were starting to fall away from the church. People were leaving the truth because they were getting tired. We have to remember that in the first century, just about all over the known world, there was political persecution of people who were Christians. So these guys were constantly having to fight against hostility. They were losing their personal property. They were falling from places of honor and value in their neighbor's eyes. 
And they were really getting worn out, and they were starting to lose sight of God's promises. They started to wonder, why are we going through so much affliction? Why are, why are we going through all of these hardships? After so many years of faithful service, we're still facing this. Maybe God isn't really delivering like he said he would. Maybe God isn't really protecting us and guiding us and fulfilling us and sustaining us like he said he would. So this letter is written to them to encourage them. To say, hold fast to that faith. Don't lose sight of the path of justice and righteousness. Stay on it. It's long and it's difficult. But you've got to keep pressing on. Because faith in Jesus Christ is greater than faith in anything else in this world. Yes, if you return to Judaism, you may be thought esteemed in your neighbor's eyes again. You may not be persecuted anymore. But you'll be sacrificing the one thing that's truly greater than anything else in this world. Our context today is kind of similar. All around the world, even in our own culture, Christians are kind of falling from a place of honor and value in people's eyes. People talk bad about us to our face, behind our back, in the news, all over the place. Christians in Africa and in Asia are losing their lives. Their homes are burned. We're constantly called bigots and judgmental and unloving. And it begins to wear down on us. For even the most devoted of people, people who pour themselves into being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, who care for those who are in need, who give love and attention to those who need it most, only to be called closed-minded and hypocrites. For even the most devoted of people, so many times that starts to wear them down. And so we have people who are starting to lose hope, people who are getting burned out and tired, people who, when they were younger and first said yes to God, they said, use me in big ways. Use me to transform the world. And now they're getting so run down. There's so much to do, so many ways to serve, and they're always going, 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 doing this, doing that, serving here, serving there, that they're running ragged and they're running on fumes. People who had this flame and this spark in their eye, having a passion of spreading the kingdom of God here in this world now, are starting to grow dim. Because this culture and this society and the afflictions we face are constantly chipping away at us and wearing us down. But hold on. Hold on, the author of Hebrews says. Don't lose hope. Don't lose sight of God's blessings and God's promises. I know you're tired. I know you're weary. But the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. There's much work to be done. And so because people started to fall away from this, because they had their focus on just, if we could just get to this final promise of God, if he would just take all of this away and we could live in peace, then we'll be fine. So in our passage today, what the writer is addressing is the perception that these Christians have of God's promises. And he talks about much like pretty much everything in the Bible, there's a twofold nature to it. There's a here, and then there's a not yet. And so he starts by first talking about the not yet. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, leading all the way up to the start of our passage, he's talking about something called God's rest. And now, when I'm, not when I'm talking about God's rest, I'm not talking about God snoozing after a large Thanksgiving dinner. I'm talking about heaven. I'm talking about that picture at the end of the book of Revelation where God makes all things new and has this final triumph over evil and wickedness and sin and affliction. 
where we are finally fully reconciled to God once and for all, and we are overcome with all peace, fulfillment, joy, happiness, comfort, and freedom from sin. Brad and I were recently doing some visits in some people's homes last week, and I got to share my favorite verse on several occasions, which is from Revelation 21.4. After God creates the new heavens and the new earth, and he dwells with his people, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that something that's so amazing that we just can't wait to be part of, to get to experience, to enjoy for all of eternity? And that's what these Christians are wanting. They're saying, we're ready for that. Bring it on. Come on. Hurry up. They're tired, and they're ready to move to that point where they no longer have to fight. But the author here stresses, this is not yet. It's for a coming day. Don't look for it here. Now, yes, we do experience peace. Yes, we do experience fulfillment when we're in relationship with Jesus Christ. But because we live in a fallen world, things are going to ruffle your feathers. Things are going to irk your nerves and get in your way. That's the nature of where we live. And it's not until the last day, until the day of judgment, where everything will finally be made new and restored to goodness and fullness once and for all, for all of eternity. And he notes that even the Israelites, when being brought to the promised land, were not entering this final rest of God. Even then, God still had a final intent. Later on down the road, after the final day of judgment. And so everything now is not part of that blessing. That's still to come, the hope that we look forward to. And he says, don't lose sight of that. Continue to pursue entering that rest. Continue to work towards it. And what I think is so amazing about this, and what I love so much, is that of all the words the author could use, he could have called it heaven, the new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem, paradise, eternal life. He could have called it anything. But he calls it God's rest. Because he knows that these Christians are tired. He knows that they're weary, that they've been running on fumes and running themselves ragged, that they have done nothing but fight and serve and work day in and day out. And all they want is to rest. So he says, there will come a day when you get that rest. There will come a day when you get what you so long have hoped for, what you need, and it's the best kind of rest. It's God's rest that you will abide in. But that day is not today. Stop looking for that promise now. Now, not only does he encourage them to pursue entering this rest, he gives a very strong caution, a very strong warning. And when we read it, we think, whoa, they're in trouble. He's very firm and very straightforward with them. He says there's one requisite for entering into God's rest. It's not how many good works you've done. It's not how many times you've punched in and out of church on Sunday mornings. It is entirely based on your faith, your confidence, and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He again calls us back to thinking about the Israelites, who in the book of Numbers were caused and forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years until an entire generation died out because they had become unfaithful. They had become unbelieving and they had become rebellious. And they weren't allowed to enter the promised land. And our author here says, if you let yourself get there, if you let yourself fall from belief, if you let yourself become rebellious, mark my words, you won't get to enter God's rest. 
You faithfully serve now. You work hard. You serve in the vineyard. And then in the end, you get rewarded with rest. And actually in our passage, I think the best way of reading this is from the words themselves. Verses, 13, or verses 11 through 13 is where he says this. He says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The author recognizes that these people are terrified of the ones around them who persecute them. They've got sharp swords that can kill them. But he says here that the word of God is sharper than any of those swords. The word of God is sharper than any temptation or affliction that may come near you. And it pierces all the way down to the soul. And when we stand before God on judgment day, as we prepare to enter into God's rest, and he looks deep into our hearts, it won't be the things or the people around us that matter that determine whether or not we enter. It will only be whether we had faith and whether we had obedience. It will only be whether we honestly loved and pursued after Jesus Christ with everything in us. That's for the future promise, the day to come. Now, when we get to the promise of the here, the now, the present, there's one thing we need to take care of before we address this. In verse 14, we see something really weird. The author calls Jesus a great high priest. That's weird. Nowhere else in the New Testament is Jesus called a high priest. We know Jesus as the Son of God, the Lion of Judah, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, our brother, our friend, the Savior and Redeemer of humanity. But nobody, nobody says, this is Jesus, my high priest. That's weird. That's not what people say. But it's so important. So first, before we get to this present promise, we need to remind ourselves, what is a priest and what does a priest do? Why are they important? And for this, everyone's favorite book will be very helpful for this. So I get to talk about a book everyone knows and loves, Leviticus. Okay, maybe for some of you, it's your second favorite book. In Leviticus, we read about the priest and what they do. And the priests are one of three primary people in ancient Israel. The priest, the king, and the prophet. Now, the king would govern on behalf of God. The prophet would speak on behalf of God. But the priest would speak to God on behalf of the people. The priest was the one who interceded for the people, the one who offered sacrifices for them, the one who would pray to God on their behalf. We really get a good picture of this in the book of Exodus whenever God serves in that kind of mediating position between the people and God, like whenever he receives the law on Mount Sinai, or as they're wandering through the wilderness. The people are never talking and communicating to God. They're talking to Moses, and then Moses brings their needs before God. But Jesus isn't just called a priest. He's called the high priest. Now, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us something really important about high priests. They did all the same functions as a normal priest, but they had one particular role, one responsibility that made them so important. And it was that one day a year, 
they would go into the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle or the, uh, or the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the throne of God was, where His very presence dwelt on the earth. And the high priest would make amends for the sins of the people by offering a sacrifice. This one day a year was known as the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would spend days in preparation, purifying himself and cleansing himself and trying to make sure that he's as righteous as he can be as he prepares to approach the very presence of God. But the thing about it is that he was the only one who could do it in only that one place and only that one day a year and for only that one purpose. Now, Jesus is described as the great high priest, an even better high priest. First of all, we know him as the spotless lamb. Beforehand in the Old Testament, there would be sacrifices and offerings for people's sins. Here's a goat, here's a sheep, here's a cow, a burnt offering without blemish. But it never fully covered everyone's sin. It never fully covered everyone's transgressions and struggles but Jesus, because he lived for 33 years on this earth and never once sinned, while he was tempted but never fell, while he continued to be righteous and holy and just and perfect, his sacrifice is enough to cover not only the sins of everyone today, but the sins of the whole world in every generation for all of time. He is the perfect sacrifice. But Jesus isn't just some wild animal that someone went and got and said, let's sacrifice him. Jesus offered himself up. Just as the high priest would offer up this sacrifice on behalf of the people, Jesus offered up the perfect sacrifice himself on behalf of his people. That makes him a better high priest. That makes his grace and his power even greater. In addition to that, our passage in verse 14 says that he passed through the heavens. The previous high priests were confined to here on the earth in a specific place in the tabernacle or, or the temple. But Jesus intercedes for us in heaven, in the heavenly court at the right hand of God the Father, directly in his ear. Not only does Jesus continually sit and abide in the presence of God, he can sympathize with us. It says here that Jesus knows our struggles. He knows our afflictions. He knows what we go through because Jesus became a man and walked with us. He faced the same temptations and even more, and he overcame them. So when we come and we fall, when we fail, when we lose, Jesus knows. He understands. He says, I've been there. I get how hard it is. And so he truly is our great advocate. Not only did he walk in our shoes, not only does he sit at the right hand of God, not only is he entirely righteous, but he's God himself. What a powerful advocate we have. What a powerful high priest who intercedes for us. And now the moment we've all been waiting for, the big grand climax where we finally mention and talk about what the promise is for today. We know that we've got God's rest, heaven waiting for us on the other side after judgment day. But what's for today? What hope do we have for right here and now? I'm going to read it directly. The last verse of our passage. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, I don't think that there has been anything more beautiful said 
since the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What this means is that Jesus, as our high priest, has opened the door, has allowed us to actually approach and draw near to God's throne. Remember I told you before, previously, only one person, one day a year, in one place, for one reason, could actually draw near in the presence of God. But now, because of Jesus, because of his death, resurrection, and because of his intercession for us, we can approach God at any time, in any place, any one of us, for any reason. Jesus has opened up to us a private audience and access to the author of life itself, to the creator of the heavens and the earth, something that not everyone has been able to enjoy. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have this incredible privilege and we know that we can approach that throne with confidence. We do it, of course, through prayer. When we pray, we can approach with confidence, with whatever's on our hearts, with whatever's on our minds, knowing that we will receive grace and mercy because Jesus knows what we go through. He knows our struggles. He knows how tired and weary we are. And we will receive help in time of need. So, friends, the question is, do we do that? Knowing that we have this incredible privilege, this promise for today of having access in the very presence of God and not being struck dead, but being welcomed continually, never having to go through another person, never having to make an appointment to meet with God or to wait in a waiting room but being able to call upon him with all of our fears, our worries, our anxieties, our sorrows, our troubles, our confusions. Do we go to him with all of those things? Do we truly listen and see that promise? Do we see God working right there in front of us, knowing that he's sitting right beside us? All we have to do is go to him. Or do we continue to sit there and say, I'm still waiting for that rest that was promised? He's our strong advocate. And he beckons us to come before him with all of our burdens, to come before him with whatever we're struggling with. The Christians in this letter to the Hebrews, some of them didn't. Instead of going to God with everything that was on their minds and letting him give them peace and comfort and breathe life into them, they started to lose sight of his promises and started to think that he wasn't delivering on them and they fell away from the faith. But God invites us God welcomes us into his presence. The final rest may not be here yet. We still have that to look forward to in a coming time. But for now, whatever you go through, whatever you deal with, whatever hard days you face, whatever temptations grip you, whatever someone says to you or you hear on the news that just ruffles your feathers, however weary you may feel after serving day in and day out, Know that you're never alone. God welcomes you to share anything with him, to not worry about upsetting him, to not worry about offending him or feeling unworthy of going before him. He's waiting for you. Kneel before the king, sit at his feet, and tell him your story. Amen.